Thank you, Amber. That is my number one most favorite song, and uh, I would like it to be sung at my funeral. I won't be there, but it'd be something for you to remember me by. Not that I am holy. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Just a few announcements. Tomatoes. Do you like tomatoes? Ken has brought in a lot of tomato plants, and they're underneath the Dawn Redwood tree. That's, that's the tree out by the parking lot. So please help yourself to tomatoes. And if you have an overabundance with green thumbs, you can always bring tomatoes in. I will not eat them. I do not like tomatoes. My father, who was a gardener, made me grow tomatoes. That's not why I don't like them. I just don't like them. But... My wife does, so I always planted tomatoes for Gail. Other announcements, after the service, uh, we're going to have some filming. And I'd, if you can stay around, uh, I'd love to have you stay around, and we'll direct you afterwards. It's, there'll be no audio. It's just filming to improve our website and letting people know how we actually operate as a church because a lot of people find us on the Internet and we're trying to give them a good representation of who Grace Reformed Baptist Church is. So if you can, please stay around. And the last announcement is, I just wanted to call you your attention, as Pastor did in the men's prayer time, to the verse in the, in the bulletin insert, Isaiah 43:25. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and ask him to forgive you, your sins will be blotted out and you will be made white as snow. Gordon has been going over that in the John 3.16 adult ministry training class. If you don't come to that, I'd, I'd encourage you to come. It's fantastic. Gordon is one of the best teachers I've ever had. Um, and you heard that. Other people are saying it too. Um, so come to that, and let's worship the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Andy. I wanted to read a selection from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 before we begin our prayer time, and then I'll give you a chance to pray and prepare your heart to worship the Lord. Today I'm going to preach a message um, kind of like post-resurrection, and it may ha end up being several because it is so wonderful to spend some time thinking about Jesus Christ, what he is doing now. Because there may be a time in which you need some encouragement. In this text here, it ends in the chapter 4, ends in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18 with encourage one another with these words. You can get encouragement from God's word. And as sure as all that has been fulfilled, all will be fulfilled that he has promised that is yet to be done. This word I'll read in here that says asleep, it's a way to talk about a Christian. We talk about a Christian who has died. Andy even mentioned that. It's my favorite song of my funeral. Well, he'll be asleep waiting for a bodily resurrection should he die before the Lord comes. 
But the Lord has promised that he would indeed come. And when he does, he will snatch us away. We call this the, the rapture. It's found in this text here, and so let me just read it for you. You reflect on it for a moment, and then we'll pray corporately. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Take a moment to think on these words as you prepare your heart to worship Christ in the various ways in which we'll do so through singing out his praises to continue our prayer by his grace that he would indeed hear us by the proclamation of his word that we may indeed hear the words of Christ. Take a moment privately to prepare your heart and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this day thanking you for sending your Son to take on human flesh to live among us, to bear our sin on his body on the tree, to atone for everyone, to be buried, and to rise again. We're thankful that Jesus continued to teach his disciples his word, a word which we have today a word in which we can declare that is indeed a word from the Lord. I pray that you would give us great faith and great encouragement in these days. For those among us that have fallen, fallen asleep, we pray that we would not grieve as those without hope, but that we would have indeed hope. I pray also that we would be looking forward to that soon coming of Jesus Christ our Lord, that we might always be with the Lord. May it be a great encouragement for us even in this day. You have a purpose and a plan for all that happens, and I pray that you would give us great faith and trust in you in the interim. I pray that you give us patience to indeed wait for the coming of the Lord. I pray that we would not be discouraged by the circumstances in this life, many of which are incredibly painful. I pray for those that have suffered recent loss, Father. I pray, Father, that 
they would be comforted by the hope of the return of Christ. I pray for those that are feeling ill and are recovering and hoping to recover from the various circumstances they find themselves in. I pray, Father, that their hope would be renewed in Christ. I pray for those that are truly in Christ that we would sing from the heart a great joy and praise to your holy name. I pray for those that are outside of Christ that they might actually realize it even this day and behold the glory of Jesus Christ and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. May great salvation, we pray, occur even this day. I pray that we would be encouraged by the word of your truth granted to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 33 in our hymn books. Praise the Lord, ye heavens, adore him. Hallelujah, praise the Lord from the heavens.
596. 596. This may be a new song for some of us, so we'll go through it uh, once before we start singing. But uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 kind of sets us up for this hymn. It says, Before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly charge you, proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Yeah. So 596, a charge to keep I have. Let's go through it once and then we'll, we'll come in on a second go around. or we'll read the responsive reading before we sing when the roll is called up yonder. So the responsive reading is entitled Looking to Heaven. Hear these words of Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. said, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject, subject everything to himself.
The scripture reading for today starts in Acts 5.17 on page 9.13 of the Pew Bibles. Now, Romans chapter 13 tells us very clearly that we are to honor governmental authorities. Then when is it time for civil disobedience? Uh, We see it here from the apostles. Uh, We must obey God rather than men. With that, we have uh, that kind of example from the midwives in the days of Moses, from Daniel and his friends, uh, from Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising uh, the shame. And here in this chapter, we see uh, the motivation of this oxymoron of being joy at being counted worthy of being shamed for the sake of Christ. And Hebrews 13 tells us to go outside the camp uh, and Uh, taking on uh, that same reproach, to leave the comfort of the city, to go uh, outside into the discomfort of that narrow path to Golgotha. Uh, In the early church, they were accused of being atheists because they refused to give, the Christians would refuse to give that pinch of incense and say that, declare that Caesar is Lord. We have this example from uh, Luther in Wittenberg, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, uh, with Calvin in Geneva, with uh, the Huguenots in France, with uh, the Covenanters in Scotland who uh, would not say that the king is the head of the church, uh, with the Puritan nonconformists like John Bunyan who spent 12 years in church, uh, who spent 12 years in prison, uh, which made him unable to directly provide for his wife and disabled daughter. When we served in Korea, uh, one of uh, my co-workers only has one arm because she was born in North Korea and they cut it off. But even in the West, in England, in Canada, even in America, it doesn't take that much imagination to see the uh, animosity, uh, the LGBT that doesn't want to just come out of the closet but force you to be in the closet, that uh, would have us uh, take away homeschooling if they could, Uh, take away our tax-exempt if it could, just have us not even be there if they could. uh, My friend's pastor is named uh, Brian Borgman, and we know that quote from Tertullian that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, He taught me to check out his Tertullian's book, uh, Apologetica, and see some of the context about how it's in your face to the pagan rulers. Uh, uh, Tertullian writes, We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. When you chose recently to hand a Christian girl over to a brothel keeper rather than to the lion's, you showed you knew that we counted chastity dearer than life. I wish that they could say that about us today, that we would love chastity more than life. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. Like Luke, my son, Lord willing, you will grow up to be a man, and 
you will need to be a brave young man because many people in the world hate the church and we need to love Jesus anyway. And many people hate Jesus and we need to obey Jesus anyway. And that's my prayer for all of our children and for all of us. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your spirit we would have eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ, Uh, that we would uh, count you so precious and valuable, O God, that we would count your son so precious and valuable, O God, that we would realize that you are more than anything that the world can give us. Uh, Let that inspire our worship, our reverence towards your word, and our giving today. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. And the most important part is the word of God. Thanks. 517. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named uh, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, uh, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered, 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God. Take your hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 302. 302. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice.
Amen. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Amber, and congregation as well. Indeed, we should rejoice. The Lord is King. I always like to look at who authored these. Sometimes when you see such good theological truth, you know it comes from a preacher, and particularly one that lived quite some time ago. This is Charles Wesley. What, what great phraseology this has all along the way. It's helpful to be reminded and think about those hymns because they reflect the truth that is indeed found in God's Word. Today I wanted to do a bit of a postlude sermon, if you will, concerning the King, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I've enjoyed going through Holy Week. I never really get tired of this content, immersing myself in it. One of the things I wanted to do was really kind of give a devotional for each day of Passion Week, as we have an outline that I hand out. And I thought it would be a little short devotional, maybe five minutes, ten minutes, and... um, hand that out, and um, maybe do some video with Paul working on some of that to be helpful. The problem is it's hard to squeeze all of that in, in an hour, and including what happened Saturday, which is just his burial. But it's not just his burial. And we went over that on Wednesday night, and I had a hard time fitting that into a half an hour presentation and didn't touch half of it. But our focus today, and perhaps the next week or so, we'll see, we'll get back to Hebrews chapter 7 and bring up Melchizedek. We haven't left that off. We'll get to that. But I thought it'd be helpful to talk about this aftermath of the resurrection. I was in a meeting one time at a church that was really struggling. I was... um, serving there as an associate, and I was in a meeting, and one of the men in the meeting asked this question. He said, um, whatever happened to Jesus after he rose from the dead? (laughs) And I'm wondering, have you not even been to Sunday school? Uh, it, It explained to me why they were having so many problems. But I suppose it would be a good question to ask if your question prompted you to just think about that a little bit deeper. We, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to the disciples. He ascended on high. But what are some of the details concerning that? And I thought we could address that, and particularly the admonition that is given to us that are in Christ, and primarily at this point, what, what do we do next? And ultimately, it is to patiently wait for the king to return, and to do so by faith, to have that patience. Yes, he's given us a mission, and we'll unfold that as well, but I want to focus on just the waiting patiently for this king by faith. Jesus Christ walks into Jerusalem on what we commemorate as Palm Sunday. He is king. 
he fulfills all that Scripture says about him. He comes in peace when he enters in Jerusalem. It's symbolized by the animal in which he rides, not a brilliant white horse of war, but a humble colt. He comes in peace. The crowds, if you remember, honored him. They give him praise because he is king, and they recognize him coming in that way. They, they throw palm branches down. They throw garments down, everything. It, it's a big fanfare. They even cry out in Hebrew, Hosanna. That, that means, essentially, it's, it's like a prayer, the prayer of, of, to be saved. It, it means, save us now, we pray They were looking for a king who would establish his kingdom. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus preached. But we recognize historically through what we would call the Passion Week or the Holy Week that these people that cried out on day one, save us now, as the week unfolds, Jesus begins to teach them the reality of what the kingdom of God actually is. This fervent antagonism, then, of the religious leaders who recognize this and the people rejoicing, they begin to have great influence and slowly change this rejoicing of the people to rage and outrage against Jesus. They were stoking the fires because the people could imagine this king who would come and save them. Save them by overthrowing whatever opposition that they had. Currently, it was Rome. But they would save them. This king would come and save them according to their own individual sovereignty. And that this king would come and establish a kingdom that would support their own self-righteousness. Jesus taught them differently. It began to be realized and recognized not only by the religious leaders, but by the people themselves. You see, Jesus came as king to establish his kingdom. But he would first need some subjects. Because none are qualified to enter in. You must be born again, born from above, born anew to be a subject of Christ's kingdom. And to work that out, he would need to save his people from the bondage of their sin. He would need to save his people from themselves, from their own self righteousness, from their own imagined autonomy. Humanity, all of it, is a slave to sin and subject to its curse and consequence. This is why we all die. Part of that subjugation to sin, by the way, is a failure to recognize it. To failure to realize the predicament that we're actually in. Beloved, we can't imagine what life would be like 
the beauty of what it would be without sin. It's fullness of joy. We experience joy, but it's temporal and it's fading. That's all we actually know. But without sin, it's a fullness that we really, I think, also we don't have the capacity to appreciate at this time. So instead, we just wallow in our own filth, thinking ourselves to be cleaner than our companions in the sewer. Matthew began his gospel by reminding us that a son would be sent, and you would call his name Jesus. That means deliverer. He will deliver. What will he do? He will save his people from their sins. He did so in fulfillment of what God had decreed and then revealed or spoken through his prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This aspect of his mission is accomplished on Friday. He himself alone, by himself, bore our sin in his body on the tree. And he did so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by the very wounds of Christ suffered this week that we are healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. He spoke three words that should ring in our ears throughout eternity. And it's simply this, it is finished. Mission accomplished. This was his purpose in coming, to save his people from their sins, even if they didn't recognize it. Three days his body laid in the tomb, Friday, Saturday, and what we call Sunday, the first day of the week. But he didn't remain there. And he could not remain there because it was impossible for him to remain there. In the preaching of Peter, you can find this over, I'll get to Acts 1 in a minute. Acts chapter 2 and drop down to verse 23. Peter is preaching about these events and he says this Jesus, verse 23 of chapter 2, he is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is, God determined it ahead of time. It is his revelation that the prophets are speaking about, and that's why it's going to happen. Not that God just would know what happened, but he foreordained it to happen. That what? By their own will and their own sinful heart, because he recognizes that, they crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, but God raised them up. God raised them up, loosening the pains of death. And here's the phrase I want you to underline. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Here he's quoting Psalm 16. David, he says, 
David, under the inspiration of God, says this concerning him, verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. In other words, talking about the eternality of the Christ. He says, therefore, my heart was glad and my, my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. How can you have hope at any time? Because Christ lives. That's where the focus needs to be, on him. And he goes on further, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. That's what I'm talking about, this fullness of joy. Right? Where is it going to be? In God's perfect presence, a place you have never been By faith, you look there and recognize this is what is promised to those that are in Christ Jesus. It it will make whatever else goes on seem trivial. It will give hope in hopeless times. But I want you to note here this point, and this is, again, looking at the aftermath of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, But do you see verse 24 about the impossibility of him to be held by it? A lot of people look for evidence, and we'll talk about evidence in a minute, the many proofs that are mentioned about Christ's resurrection. But this is good enough for me right here. One, I know the very nature of God. He's ever lives, ever present. And Jesus is God. He is indeed the the Holy One, and the Holy One will not see corruption. So whatever you believe about the resurrection, it couldn't have happened otherwise. You follow? It had to happen. Because Jesus is God. And he will not see corruption. He did rise, and he must rise. And this is the beauty of God's glorious design in the redemption of his people, because it couldn't happen in any other way. Because all of us, subject to sin and death, would, would be conquered by it. But there's only one, the God-man, who could take on human flesh and die and yet live. Amazing. The gospel goes on to provide the accounts of then of Jesus' resurrection, which necessarily must happen and did. And as the gospel writers finish up, they, they begin to talk about then what, what happens next. And that's his various appearances, his appearances to his disciples. He, he then provides for them additional instruction. Now, he's told them all ahead of time. He spent three years with them, teaching them. And yet, now he must teach them a little bit more with a little clarity after they have experienced all that has gone on. Jesus has risen. What's next for his disciples? Well, he gives them a mission. You can find that. We talked about that last time briefly, Matthew 28 19 through 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, that is all 
ethnic groups, all types of people. Not Western, not Eastern, everyone. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I, Jesus says, am with you to the end of the age. It's really helpful to understand the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by understanding that, you would recognize how Jesus will be with us. Emmanuel, Matthew 121, God with us. How is God with us? How would Jesus be with us to the end of the age? It's real simple. Jesus has instructed them previously that he would send another of the same essence, that is, the Holy Spirit, who would dwell in them. So this ascended Christ then sends the Holy Spirit to dwell with his disciples so that they would be enabled to do this impossible mission. How are you going to make disciples of all nations? when they just killed the Christ. You will not do so by coercion. You will not do so by intellectual convincing people. You'll do so, real simple, by proclaiming Christ. That's it. The foolishness of, we call it, preaching or proclamation. And the Holy Spirit will take that and regenerate the heart. And faith will come by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. So preach Christ. And that's what you'll hear here, by the way. It's all we do is preach Christ. Because it will save it. It will sanctify. It will build up the body. Now, the book I asked you to turn to was the book of Acts. And we'll look at chapter 1. Because this really details a little bit more what happened immediately next. Then after that, Luke is writing. He wrote the gospel. That's like part one of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Part two then is the ministry really of the apostles. And how and this transition time in chapter one. In which Christ will empower the disciples, to do what he has called them to do and then document it historically in this book we call the book of Acts that we're reading through, by the way, on Sunday mornings. But let me just read the first 11 verses as a transition of what happens next. It begins this way, in this In the first book, he's referring to the gospel, O Theophilus, that's God-lover, means, but it is most like an individual. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by Many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the, note this, kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, But you will be baptized, that is, immersed with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, 
They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, that is, in glory. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you give us insight into your holy word. May it be that which brings about conviction that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. May it be comfort to your people. May it give us great courage to stand even in days of opposition as the apostles And those who followed in their footsteps have done throughout church history to simply proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and patiently wait for his kingdom to come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have read through the Gospel of Luke, As his accounts of the ministry of Jesus, in Jesus' preaching, he would call people to repentance and faith. And he simply told them the kingdom of God is at hand. It is at hand right now for all who will follow the king. That is, be his disciple. That's what a disciple means. A follower, and in this case, of Jesus Christ. Immediately after the resurrection and then before he ascends to heaven to sit on the throne as he is now, he must first equip the disciples with the resources for them to continue on in his steps. And one of the resources he gives them in our text, if you'll note, first of all, is this idea of proof. Many proofs, many proofs of his resurrection, of his deity, of his authority, and the validity of his teaching. Now, as I already mentioned, (laughs) the text is quite clear. Peter knew it from the, the text that they had. In that case, it would have been the Psalms, that this is all true. But it's helpful to be reminded of it. And Jesus takes the time to do that very thing. If you notice in verse 3, after his suffering, after his resurrection, 
He presents himself to them, it says alive, that is in bodily form, and he does so over 40 days. And note here, what is he speaking about? And I'll address that in a minute. Do you see that? He's talking about the kingdom of God. It isn't that Jesus Christ had to prove anything. He didn't, and he doesn't. However, what you do see about Jesus Christ is his humility in accommodating us, and particularly, in this case, his disciples. You remember from, we read through the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 last week. And just a selection of it, if you recall, from verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about Jesus' appearances that Luke is recording here. And Paul says it this way. Well, he, he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. He then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And I would say that's in that Galilee region that Luke is talking about. That There were hundreds there. Most of whom, he says, are still alive. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. Though some have fallen asleep. Again, using that beautiful phraseology about falling asleep. I think it's a good pattern to, to use for those that are in Christ falling asleep in the sense that they will be wakened to the resurrection of life. That's the whole point in them expressing it that way. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Jesus Christ made a special appearance outside the norm in a miraculous way to the apostle Paul. At this point, I want you to think about something here. The many proofs that he gives, which are important, are all given to those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. He doesn't appear to the Sanhedrin who orchestrated this, or to Pilate who reluctantly agreed with his crucifixion, or the soldiers that were part of jamming a spear in his side, or even trying to humiliate him with the crown of thorns, or even the crowd that cried out, crucify him, and could see in the background that figure on the cross. Jesus does not bring his many proofs to them at all. He's very selective. And I think we can understand this. There is a sense in which Jesus Christ loves mankind in general. We call that sense common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. You woke up this morning and all of the world woke up. Or if they're in a different time zone, they will wake up, Lord willing, only because the Lord is willing. We call that his common grace. But there's a distinction in his love and his grace. And that is he has a special love for those that are covenanted with him. Those that are committed those that obey him, 
because of the sanctifying work that's done in their heart, the regenerate work done in their heart in a particular way. It is no good to do miracles for unbelievers. It doesn't accomplish anything. I don't care what kind of sideshow people put on. It's not going to accomplish anything. If it would accomplish anything, would have this been the best time to do it? I mean, it just always, every year I think about it in the resurrection hymn, he's right there in Jerusalem, right outside the gate in the, in the burial area. Why doesn't he just walk up and, and, and remember, he came in the, in the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as king. Why doesn't he just come back and triumph and say, look, I'm back. It's because the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's because we love darkness of Satan rather than the light of the Savior. They love the lies of the deceiver rather than the truth of the deliverer, Jesus Christ. This is the natural state of man. And you can see that unfold here in the, during this Passion Week, as we call it. So it would do no good to go and give the many proofs to them. It wouldn't change their heart. That's the problem. There must be a supernatural change of the heart of the unbeliever to give them ears to actually hear, to give them the ability to taste and then eyes to, to see that indeed the Lord is good. They're obstructed by the veil of their own fallen state, and doubly so by the work of their adversary, the devil. It is a hopeless state. You, you see, he walks back into the kingdom, which this is coming, and I'll unfold it next time if I can get through some of this. But the next time he comes in his righteousness and displayed, it is going to bring judgment. And I'll touch on that to some degree, unpack it later to a greater degree. And don't take my word for it. Let's hear an inspired Apostle Paul. And I think this is a great text to, to, to recognize this, so I'll ask you to turn for 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I refer to this from time to time. It, it impacts me, and it, it's a great way to, to understand this concept in, a, in a, an abbreviated, impactful statement. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. Here, Paul is talking about this good news, this gospel. It, it is good news that Jesus Christ is risen. This is what we're proclaiming. But there's a problem. It's veiled, is the terminology he used. How is it veiled? He says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, it is veiled to those that, who are perishing. That's what I'm talking about. This is the natural state of the unbeliever. This is the natural state of all mankind. As he come into the world. This is a default state. Perishing. And what is their description of this perishing state? In their case, 
the God of this world, who would that be? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Put it on a billboard. That's great. But that's not going to bring about this ability to see the glory of Christ. He is glorious. And you preach to many, and, and they think, oh, that's, that's good. What else is on TV? And here's the methodology for what we proclaim then or preach is not ourselves. It's not our own ability to convince other people into believing anything. We don't preach ourselves. But here's what we preach. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Deliverer, the Messiah, the Sovereign Lord, that's it. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. This is kingdom language, by the way. This is how you get into the kingdom. You see, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus Christ is not Lord, if you don't see him, pray and call on the name of the Lord. He will answer. Notice the text. For God said... Let, shine, let, uh, let light shine out of darkness. What, he's, what is he pointing back to? Creation in Genesis where God spoke and said what? Let there be light. Look outside. Is there light? It's because God spoke it into existence. He has then shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of this is by God's Grace and his grace alone. And that's how someone comes about to seeing the glory of Christ. We just proclaim him and not ourselves. We hold Christ up and God will use that message to shine in our hearts as the imagery given here to bring about regeneration. This many proofs, then, that he talks about is the benefit, it is for primarily the benefit for those who have eyes to see. You see, I, I'm all for evidential apologetics because there is overwhelming evidence. But in the imagery of the text, if you're blind, you can't see it, right? If you're deaf, you can't hear it. If you're dead, you can't respond to it. And those are the descriptives of those that are outside of Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus performed many signs, many evidences, many miracles. Those were done in order to affirm the very message and the messenger. In other words, Jesus Christ himself and then all that he had said. And if you remember in John chapter 3, a ruler 
in, of the Jews, Nicodemus, a teacher of all things, comes to Jesus by night because he's understandably afraid. You see what happened to Jesus. And he says, we, we, we know that you're from God because it's an impossible for all of this to have happened except that God was with you. And Jesus' response to him is, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That is, an anathen in Greek, it means both above and a second time. It's a new birth. What a, what a great word to express that. That is, a miraculous birth from above must happen first for you to be able to truly see and savor the kingdom of God. It isn't all the signs that he saw, even though he acknowledged they were from God. It would take a supernatural work in his heart. I ask you to turn to Matthew 28, I mean 12, I meant to say, just to show you something here. His detractors saw the signs, as evidenced by Nicodemus, who was a leader. And so, verse 38 of chapter 12 in Matthew, some from that group, the scribes and Pharisees, they, they came to him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, they've already seen all the signs. <laughs> it, 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 whatever you think about Jesus and his ministry, it just continued to increase and increase, particularly as people became aware. He, he demonstrated and did things that nobody could ever replicate or do or even come close. I mean, can you, can you, can you imagine somebody trying to trick you by, by there's a, a, a huge hurricane out there and Jesus says, stop, and it stops immediately. Nobody can do that. Nobody can pull that off. Where, where he can actually take a corpse who is actually in a state of decay and somehow bring it back to life, and there is no longer any decay? Where somebody who was disabled for their entire life couldn't walk, could immediately stand up and walk, not, not in time, but immediately, and not only just walk under his own power, but imagine his, his muscles had no muscles at that point, could actually pick something up and carry it? Jesus demonstrated this because you think that's hard. I'll tell you what's hard is changing the hard heart of man. He said, I'm doing this, I'm doing this so that you would know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. That's the greatest thing. The, the, well, what, what else does it matter in this temporal life? What matters is to have your sin forgiven. So they come to him and they want a sign. All right. They don't want a sign. They just, they don't believe. He's done enough. And his response to him in verse 30, them in verse 39, is that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Because, see, Jesus knows what's in their heart. They, they don't need more evidence. They don't need more proof. By the way, nobody needs more evidence. Nobody needs more proof. There's nothing more that he could do what, he needs, what you need is a change of heart. He says, I'm going to give you a sign, though. I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah, who typified me. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. By the way, that is a title of divinity, of a divine man. He'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
I'm going to be buried. That's your sign. And just like Jonah, I'm going to be delivered and come to life once again. And he says, the men of Nineveh, they're going to rise up at the judgment with, the generation, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Do you, do you remember that? Jonah was called to preach, didn't want to. This, he was persuaded. He didn't think that these pagan people would, would ever repent and believe. And so he just preached reluctantly and the people responded you know maybe if we repent and confess our sin um, God didn't make a covenant with us but he's he's we've heard about him and he's a good God and 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 maybe maybe he would forgive us it's a great story go read the book of Jonah and they do and God does I can tell you the one thing about God I don't care where you're at. Come to him. He will forgive you. He will save you now. These, in imagery then, he's saying, look, this, there's a judgment that's going to come from this generation. They're going to be condemned. Because that generation in, in Nineveh, they, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, here, is, here it is, something greater than Jonah is here. Who is this? God incarnate. It can't be a better prophet. It can't be a better preacher. It can't be a better leader. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment to this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And one greater than Solomon is here. It is Jesus Christ. For an unbeliever who rejects the message and this messenger, Jesus Christ, the signs then become not as a saving element, but one of judgment. And we've spoken numbers of times, haven't we, through the preaching of the preacher in Hebrews about this great warning of not neglecting so great a salvation, of being careful not to drift away, that the salvation is today. Don't harden your voice, the heart, should I say, as they did in the wilderness, he would say. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Our text in Acts says, the, then gives these many proofs, then not to the world in general, this evidence, not to those that were opposing them, because that isn't going to bring about life to them. Instead, it's going to bring about judgment. But instead, he goes to those that love him. And those that love him, he gives them a further appreciation of who he is and the meaning and the significance. And this is where um, I, I define it this way oftentimes. You know, a scholar can go look at this text and be very good at understanding, I would call it the substance of it. All right? They can go back and piece together and know 
what this ancient text actually says. And they all, if without bias, will come up with essentially the, the text that you have right here. But what they miss is the significance of it. You can read these words, but they don't impact your heart. You don't see the benefit to it. You don't see the glory, if you will, of Christ in it. And beloved, if, if you're reading the scriptures and you don't see that, pray that he would manifest himself in that way to you. Oftentimes in my study, I know I have to work and, un, and understand and correlate and look things up. And, but there has never been a time when I'm just absolutely broken by the truth. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It isn't just about, we would call it the, the head, getting an intellectual understanding of all of this. It's beyond that, to where it, it really affects who you are on the inside. And there is then a great personal appreciation I'm trying I'm just grasping for ways to express it but let me allow some of the disciples who did did see it for them to express it and here just as a selection example there are many many more but here are some this is on we call it the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 his previous book Luke who's writing Acts Jesus meets with these disciples these aren't the twelve. These are those that appreciated and followed Christ. Not all of them said, let's crucify him. He had some. Remember that he appeared to 500 of them in Galilee. As they talked to Jesus Christ, they didn't really recognize that he had risen from the dead, and it was actually Jesus Christ that was talking to them. And Jesus asked them, you know, what are you all so down in the mouth about? And they told him the story of what we would know as Passion Week and how Christ had died and how he was buried. But look at verse 31 of chapter 24. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You see? He, he showed him the scriptures. He told them all. And then this is the supernatural work of God where he does, it's expressed this way. He opens their eyes. He gives them eyes to see. Now they see the significance of what was said. And Jesus just moves on. He vanishes from, from their sight. But notice their response then to all of that experience that they had with the risen Christ. Verse 32, they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And while he opened to us the scriptures. <laughs> Fundamentally, this is what we do, beloved. We just open the scriptures. It, it is God's work then to move within our hearts. The heart here really refers to, to the mind, primarily. Yeah, you can't divest 
emotions from it as well, but it's, it's getting to the mind where there's a recognition and realization of it. And notice how it, where it is rooted. It is rooted in the scriptures. It, it, it isn't that it's just that he shows up, if you will, evidentially, but it pointed, points to the Holy Scripture. They rose the same, what is the response? They rose the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how that he was made known in the breaking of bread. <coughs> Drop down to verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. These are the disciples. And he says to them, peace to you. Well, he has to because he's in a glorified state. They would otherwise be frightened, and that's what it says in verse 37. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet, it's I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when, they, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Here, Jesus is in this is the state that he is in now there is a physicality he has taken on human flesh it is in a glorified state and it will remain and we don't get all the answers but here he can participate in 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 his glorified state of eating with them and they bring him some fish and he eats it before them verse 43 and then he said to them you know they're and, and I, again, we're looking back in history, you know, so don't press on them too hard. They're, they're in, in the midst of it, and it's, they're confused about it. But he points, where will the clarification of all that's going on be? He points once again, verse 44. These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the source of verity. This is why we continue going back to this right here. Not my ideas, but the scriptures themselves. Here, Christ was in front of them. He said, go ahead and touch me. Go ahead and watch me eat. Watch me do this. But you know what you really need to do? Read the scriptures. And believe what God has revealed in his word. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Isn't that similar to what happened to the guys on the road to Emmaus? He opened their minds he opened their heart to understand Th this is how you'll get the significance of it I, I remember witnessing to a a jehovah's witness if you don't know much about them it's a cultic group that rejects the deity of jesus christ 
And I just started talking about the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John says a lot about the deity of Christ. The entire scriptures do. However, John is really pointed at it. And I just simply asked them in a, in a, in a way to witness. I, I asked them a few questions they couldn't, an, they couldn't answer in the Gospel of John. I said, I'm not trying to trip you up. But I want to encourage you simply to this. And I handed them a little, gospel, little booklet of John. I said, read through that. And pray. And pray to Christ and say, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. He, can I tell you this? He will open blinded eyes. He, he, he will allow those who can't hear to hear. He, he will bring a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. I could do nothing of that. And if he was here with us, you know what he would do? He, he, he would take this right here and say, here, this is, this is my word. Take it. Spend time with it. This is how you'll come to faith, and this is how you'll grow in faith. Jesus did all kinds of signs, and I can't get into all of them. In fact, John will conclude his gospel by saying, you know, there's so many more that aren't even written in this book. We can't even begin to document all of them because we would have too big of a resource for us to be able to do. But these things that are written here are written so that you would believe, and that's what matters. These are essential. I just want to say one more thing, since um, I'm having a hard time. I always feel like I'm trying to get about 1,000 pounds of potatoes in a five-pound sack with the time we have. Um, But let me just mention one more thing from Luke. He talks about what Jesus Christ was preaching. He was preaching about the kingdom of God, right? And he showed the proofs. He did it over 40 days. And what was, he, what was he talking about the whole time? The same thing he was talking about at the very beginning. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God essentially is Christ's sovereign reign. He is Lord. It uses that kingship language of him as Lord. His kingdom would be his reign, his domain, a domain of righteousness, a domain of goodness, a domain of justice, of peace, of joy, of fulfillment. And we would go on and on. Anything that you can imagine that is right and good (coughs) and glorious. In fact, his kingdom is simply that, an an expression of his glory. His glory, I often describe it as the beauty of his divine attributes. Everything that is good and glorious, it is God. And Christ was speaking about that. His kingdom. His kingdom has come. And his kingdom will come. And that's what we learn. And we'll take that up in greater detail next time. But how has his kingdom come? He's he's preached it. He said, my kingdom is at hand. He, he dies, he, he is buried, he raises again. He then appears to his disciples, these that are in his kingdom, that he has redeemed. And he says the kingdom is at hand, and, and yet he's going to ascend to heaven and, and sit on a throne there. And in the meantime, this 
world still seems confusing and chaotic. How about the kingdom of righteousness and goodness and justice and peace and joy and fulfillment and all of that? As his kingdom unfolds, it begins first by redeeming his subjects. His kingdom comes in the individual as the gospel is preached that Jesus is Lord and individually we respond and recognize him as king. He gives us peace, John chapter 14. Not peace like the world gives to us, not a temporal contract, but eternal one and therefore we can continue on and not allow our hearts to be troubled or afraid. And we think of the security that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the the vine and you, my beloved disciples, then are, are branches. Abide in me and then I in him. That's that union we have with Christ. You will bear much fruit. What? Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, all these things that are a fruit of the what? The spirit in which he gives. His kingdom unfolds in the lives of his believers. And God has glorified them that we would bear fruit, he would say in John 15, and prove to be his disciples or subjects of his kingdom. He says, I speak these things to you even right now so that my joy would be in you and that your joy may be full. It is the joy of Jesus Christ. It is to this kingdom to which he bids all of us come. John would express it this way in closing out the scriptures. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let anyone who hears, come. Let One who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price, come. Come to Jesus Christ. His kingdom, he is calling his disciples to come. He is conforming his disciples to be subjects of his kingdom. But his kingdom will come, which we pray, not only in the life individually and then collectively as the people of God expressing his lordship, but it also come globally. It's coming again, Christ is, and his kingdom comes, and he will come in judgment. And so that motivates us, beloved, then to pray now and fulfill the mission that we've been called to do to make disciples, or you can think of them as subjects to his kingdom. Revelation chapter 19, John talks about that coming of Jesus Christ in which his kingdom will come globally. It'll come in great judgment. It'll judge those that are outside of the kingdom. And it must when it comes in that way. He is coming at that time on a white horse, not a donkey. 
one in great judgment. But the one who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges. And he will make war against what? Sin. He's come to, to save his people, his subjects from sin, and the consequences of it, and those that would rebel. He's coming in great judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire, John would say, and on his head are many diadems or, or crowns. He's coming in great authority, not like he did when he walked into Jerusalem on that first coming. He is coming in great judgment and great authority, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, that is, dipped in judgment, by which he is called the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We pray in the prayer that Jesus taught us, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it begin with each one of us. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that you have opened our hearts and minds to be able to see the glory of Christ. I pray that would continue, that we would call on you for faith and faithfulness. I do pray for your kingdom to come. May it be demonstrated in our individual submission to your authority. May we recognize, should we fail to do so, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And may we be motivated to call others to be subjects of your glorious kingdom and not to be judged outside of it. Bring many to faith and faithfulness, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, you may take a moment now and privately respond in faith to Christ in any way he has spoken to you. Take a moment now. Let's all stand and turn to number 443. It's a really relevant song. Open my eyes that I may see many wonderful things.
go ahead and bow and pray and be dismissed. Gracious Father, to this end we always pray for each and every one of us here that God may make you each worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.